So if you have your Bible this morning, I want you to start in the last chapter of John. It's John chapter 21 this morning. John chapter 21, last chapter in this gospel that we've been studying through. And I want you to look at the last verse in that chapter. John chapter 21, looking at verse 25, this is how John concludes this gospel. In verse 25, he says, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. I want you to keep that in mind because as we're studying through the book of John, John doesn't record every single thing that Jesus ever said or did. John records himself, look, if everything was written, I'm not sure the world could contain all the books that could be written of what Jesus has done. Flip back one chapter, chapter 20. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. John writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John is inspired by the Holy Spirit to record certain things, but not everything. And what he does record is to point us to Jesus. That Jesus is the Savior. That Jesus is fully God, fully man. He's come to save sinners. That's what he's driving throughout this gospel. Now I want you to skip back, if you've been with us each week, to where we are in John. Typically we would be back in John chapter 7. I'm going to flip there. We ended last week in John chapter 7 verse 52. Now if you're holding a Bible this morning that is a King James or a New King James, it's going to flow smoothly throughout this passage. But if you have any other translation, if you have an ESV and NIV, you're going to see some double brackets around this text. And it's going to have a little footnote in there. And it's going to say the earliest manuscripts do not include this. That's when you hear the record scratch. What? What does that mean? Well, what we do know from studying history is this passage from John chapter 7, verse 53 through John chapter 8, verse 11, didn't show up until hundreds of years later after John had penned this gospel. All the current scholars and past scholars have agreed that these verses actually were not in John's original gospel. Well, now some of you are like, forget it. Let's just take this and just throw it away. Don't give up yet. Yeah, don't give up yet. Actually, don't give up at all. <laughs> don't give up yet. Don't give up at all. That, that would infer that we're going to give up. We're not going to give up at all. Looking at some of the earlier manuscripts, the ones where this did show up, it was interesting because it actually appeared three different places in John. And it also appeared two different places in Luke, which showed that it was actually pushed in by a well-intentioned scribe. Now, we're studying John verse by verse, and if you end in verse 52, if you remember, if you've been with us, Jesus is at the Feast of Booths. Chapter 8, verse 12, picks right back up in, at the Feast of Booths. So this doesn't fit where it is. Even looking at the language, if you, you understood the Greek, the language used here is not John's language, not the language he used. It's unique to the writer that put it in. And you say, Pastor, why are you telling me this? What, what, what are we to get from this? What do we conclude? Well, one, we should be very thankful that we live in a time and age that this can be tested. And we can know that what we have is the inspired word of God. That when there is something of question, your Bible should have a footnote in it. 
that it's not what well, we just think it might be okay, or we think it's the Word of God, but it is footnoted saying, look, this did not appear in the earliest manuscripts. You say, well, what does it have to do with where we're going? Well, remember the verses we read just a moment ago at the end of, of John's Gospel? John chapter 20, verse 30, he said that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. And then the last verse of the gospel, he says, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be recorded, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So here's what we have. Scholars agree that most likely this is an historic account of something that happened in Jesus' life, that it really did occur. But scholars also agree it didn't originally appear in John's gospel, that he did not pen it. Now I want you to go back 2,000 years. Imagine you are a witness of Christ. Imagine all the things you have seen and all the things you have heard. Imagine how many witnesses there are and the things that they could tell stories around about. And most likely this one about this adulterous woman has floated around. People keep telling about this woman who was brought before Jesus. And we have most likely a well-intentioned scribe who is making a copy of a manuscript and says, wow, we should put that in writing. Instead of just telling it, let's put it in writing. So here's the issue that we need to understand. Although it's probably historic fact and it probably did occur, the Holy Spirit didn't inspire John to pen it. And as we're studying through the Gospel of John this morning, we're not going to go in great depths in that passage. I know some of you are going to be heartbroken, but I really love that one. Well, that's probably how it ended up here because it was traveled around until they actually penned it and put it in, but it doesn't belong in our text where it's at. But it does paint a beautiful picture of Christ. And I do want to comment on that because the reason it's remained in there is because it doesn't contradict any other doctrines about Jesus. As a matter of fact, it shows him, as the rest of Scripture declares him, of a man of grace and a man of truth. And in that text, if you're well familiar with it, the scribes and Pharisees bring a woman who's caught in the act of adultery unto Jesus, and they say, the law requires us to stone him. And what do you say, Jesus? And the whole point was that they would test him. As a matter of fact, they didn't bring the man. They just brought the woman. If she was caught in the act of adultery, guess what? There was a man there too. And he deserved death as well. This whole point was just to test him. And Jesus responds by elevating himself above the law of Moses, by elevating grace above law, by extending forgiveness to the sinner. Because that's who Christ is. So although it's most likely a historical account, it doesn't belong here in the gospel, but it does detail the nature of Christ. So just so we're on the same page, we're going to continue right back in the context of the Feast of Booths. We're continuing from John chapter 7. We're going to pick up in verse 12 of John chapter 8. Jesus has already given a great invitation at the Feast of Booths. If you look in John chapter 7, verse 37 and 38, Jesus said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What a great invitation. He says, You have the ceremony here where the priest is pouring out this water as a symbol of the Holy Spirit that has come. He says, I'm that source. Come to me. And if you'll remember with me, how did the crowds respond? Some said, wow, he's really a special guy. He must be a prophet. Others said, he, he must be the Messiah. Others were completely confused and said, well, he's not really of anything of any importance. While others said, arrest him and kill him. There was great chaos and confusion. 
And this morning, we pick up right back in that context. Right back where they were, that's where we're going to pick up this morning. If you're taking notes, the title of the message this morning is The Light of the World. The Light of the World. Before we get into our text this morning, let's go ahead and pray together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to get into your word. And Lord, even as we just glanced over this historical account, which most likely is a historical account of, of the grace of Jesus. Father, we get right back into this narrative of the Feast of Booths, this celebration that the Jews would go out to. And Father, we pray this morning that you would teach us. Father, that you would point us to Christ, that our eyes remain on him, the light of the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we do have five points. If you're taking notes, we're going to be looking at the offer, the response, the warning, the question, and the result. And some of you I know are already fretting, saying, oh, pastor, five points, are we going to be here forever? I can't guarantee anything. But we have five points. So let me set up the setting. I know not everybody was here as we've been going through John chapter 7. But here is the setting. It is the last day of the Feast of Booths. Jesus is standing in the temple. Specifically, we'll read in verse 20 that he's in the part that's called the treasury. It's an area that would have a huge gathering of both male and females. And the Feast of Booth has two types of ceremonies. I spoke of the first one where the high priest would go and go out to the, the Pool of Siloam, get the water, and he'd pour it out, and the people would all celebrate. This was a symbolizing God pouring out his spirit. But they had a second ceremony as well. And the second ceremony is what we'll be looking at today. The first one, the living water. Jesus gave that symbolism. And the next one is this idea of the candelabra. Candelabra would be set up, and this light would go out into the sky. It was kind of like what, what I imagine. Has you ever been to a, a, a grand opening or an event that has those big skylights, and they wave through the sky, and you can see them? Or you ever watch Batman and see the bat symbol? Okay. That's what I see from this. It's shooting this light way up in the sky. And they would go out and they would dance and they would sing and they would celebrate before this light. And it was a reminder of God being the pillar of fire as they went through the wilderness. And they rejoiced in God's faithfulness. And this is what Jesus is about to address. He's going to address himself as the light of the world. So our first point is the offer. And we'll look at verse 12 in our text this morning. John chapter 8, verse 12 says, Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Before we go in too deep into his words, let's just talk about darkness. Think about a young child going to sleep at night. Or maybe your own childhood when you were going to sleep at night. Okay, think of a child who doesn't like the darkness. Please, just leave the light on. Or please, just give me a night light. What is it about the darkness that freaks them out? And what is it about light that comforts them? You know, light exposes anything that is evil. Light exposes it. Anything that's creeping around. I remember as a child looking under my bed at night. Is there anything lurking underneath my bed? Light exposes that. As a matter of fact, Scripture tells us nothing good dwells in darkness. Ephesians 5, 11 refers to darkness having only unfruitful works. 
That's all that's there. Unfruitful works in darkness. We read in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 19, The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. The wicked are lurking in the darkness. And those in darkness we know from Scripture, they're spiritually blind. They call evil good and good evil. They can't discern light from dark. As a matter of fact, the prophet Isaiah speaks about this. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, Isaiah says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. You guys know what I'm talking about? You see the world propose something that is completely wicked and evil, and they say it's good. If you think back to our reading this morning at the end of chapter 1 of Romans, that's exactly the degradation of sin that we're speaking of. That it goes further and further. And the crazy thing is those in darkness love their darkness. They love the sin in which they live. You would think that in darkness, when light shines, those would run to the light. But the opposite is actually true. They run from the light. And why is that? Jesus already said in this gospel, John chapter 3, verse 19, he said, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. We've all experienced this. You try to offer someone hope in the gospel, but yet they love the darkness and they shun the gospel and continue out into the darkness. But the gospel, the gospel gives the way to be delivered from the domain of darkness. Jesus offer again, if you look with me again at verse 12, he speaks to them and says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. By the way, you'll notice he says, I am. This is the second I am statement in the Gospel of John. The first one, he said, I am the bread of life, describing Christ's nature as God and his work as Savior. Now he is the light of the world. Just as there was a pillar of fire, God appeared to pillar of fire in the wilderness for the Jews, Jesus calls them to follow him as that pillar. That he is now that light to be followed. How many of you know about following Christ? What does it mean to follow Christ? What does it look like to follow Christ? Jesus made it very clear in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, if anyone desires to come and follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And look at verse 24. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. There's an exchange there. To follow Christ. Christ gives the invitation and says, the world is in darkness, but I am here. I am the light of the world. Come, follow me. Come, receive him as the light of the world. Receive light yourself. Receive forgiveness. Receive life. Receive transformation. I like the comment that John MacArthur made on this. John MacArthur said this, it should be up here. It says, Jesus Christ alone brings the light of salvation to a sin-cursed world. 
To the darkness of falsehood, he is the light of truth. To the darkness of ignorance, he is the light of wisdom. To the darkness of sin, he is the light of holiness. To the darkness of sorrow, he is the light of joy. And to the darkness of death, he is the light of life. Do you see the contrast? Do you see the transformation that is in Christ? The big difference of being in darkness compared to being in light. Jesus here in verse 12 is talking to all those in the crowd, men and women, everyone who's there, and he's saying, come to me. I am the light of the world. Follow me. He's calling them. Come to him. Come to him and receive him. Come and follow him. Come and be transformed by the light. Come and enjoy him as their greatest treasury. And what's going to happen? We'll see the response, point number two. We'll see how they respond to this invitation. Starting in verse 13. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Anybody know anything about the Old Testament law of what it required? As far as witnesses for something to be true? Two or more. And they're saying, only you are saying this. And because you're the only one saying this, Jesus, by default, your testimony is not true. Well, here's one of the biggest problems. They are spiritually blind. They cannot see the truth. They cannot discern the truth. But they are, or they are claiming that Jesus cannot validate this truth. Jesus responds in verse 14. He says, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You see, Jesus knew both his origin and his destiny. He knew where he came from, and he knows where he's headed back to. And since he is the Son of God, guess what? His testimony is true. Verse 15, he says, Jesus says, you judge according to the flesh, and I judge no one. Let's talk about this. He says, you judge according to the flesh. He's saying, you don't have spiritual life. You can't see the light. That which is born of flesh, Jesus would say, is flesh. But that which is born of spirit is spirit. Jesus is telling the Pharisees the same thing he told his colleague Nicodemus. You must be born again. Unless you are born again, you cannot see these things. You are spiritually blind, he's telling them. And he goes on in verse 15 and says, I judge no one. I want to stop there and put a little... That's as of yet. That's at that point in history, he says, I judge no one. Why? Because his mission at his first coming was very intentional. It was to come and save sinners. That was his mission. We read that in John chapter 3, verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. When Jesus speaks to them, he says, look, I'm not here to judge right now. I'm here to save. But you know what? He is coming again. And when he comes a second time, there will be the one who comes as the judge. We read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, speaking of Jesus coming back again. It says he will come, uh, verse 8, in a flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord. 
They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. I want you to keep that in mind. Jesus knows these things. Jesus knows that I am on mission right now to save sinners, to come to find those who are lost, to transform them, to renew them, to give them life. But I also know the future that I'm coming back. And when I come back, it's going to be judged to judge those who rejected that. Jesus knows this. He tells these Pharisees that there is another who bears witness about him, by the way. In verses 16 through 18, he'll defend the, having another witness. He says, yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. Look at verse 18. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Over and over again through this gospel, we have seen Jesus present himself as the Son of God. He is the only Son of the Father. And he says it again, and yet they're spiritually blind, their hearts are hardened by sin, and they will not accept it. And they look at him in verse 19 and they say, uh, where is your father? Completely missing it. He's speaking of God, the father. And they're like, so, so where's your father that you said is, is bearing witness about this? H have you ever felt like this before where you say something to somebody over and over and over and over and over again, and yet they're still clueless? Now don't call out their name right now. But you know the people that are kind of dense. And you can say the same thing over and over. Jesus has done that with the Pharisees. He's told them over and over again who he is. He's declared his identity. That he and the Father are one. And they are absolutely clueless. They who prided themselves in knowing everything, haven't got a clue. And they respond in verse 19. They said, and where is your father? We just read that. Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Jesus doesn't let them off the hook. He digs in a little bit deeper. He speaks truth and he exposes their blindness. I want you to think how those who would be full of pride and think they are the most religious people, how do you think they're going to respond to that? Oh, gee, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for telling us we don't know anything and don't know anybody. They're going to be infuriated. They're going to be very upset. He's calling them out. And as we'll see in verse 20, nobody lays a hand on him. Nobody arrests him. And we know why. We've seen this unfold time and time again in John's gospel. Because his time had not yet come. God is in control of all things. So in verse 20, it says these words tell us where he was. He was in the treasury. And as he taught in the temple, no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. This treasury is, is a place, a section in the temple, and it's a complex called the Court of Women. It doesn't mean only women can go there. It means it's as far as women could actually go inside the temple. But it's also where the treasury was located. Thirteen like treasure boxes shaped like trumpets. Each of them would have a designation of what type of offering it was. This is where the, the widow would come in with her, her two mites and put them in. This is where she would have been. And this is where Jesus is declaring this, which is prime location 
Because if it's as far as the women can go, you also have all the men right there, so you have the biggest audience. You have the most people that he's going to be speaking to right in this location. And in front of everybody, he calls out the Pharisees. You can imagine the response. Jesus, though, doesn't let up. We'll look at point number three. He gives a warning. A warning in point number three in verse 21. Jesus looks at them and he says to them, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. He says, I'm going away. And what's the second thing he says? You'll seek me. You'll seek me. You're going to be looking for me then. And he says, but know this. By then, you're dying in your sin. By then, it's going to be too late. And this is scary and this is tragic. He's right there in front of them. He's right there calling them to come to him, to receive him. And yet they refuse. And he says, there will come a time when it's too late. There will come a time when you do want to seek me and it will be too late. He says, you're going to die in your sins. Church, that just means simply, you will spend eternity in hell. Nobody likes talking about that. Those aren't warm, fuzzy words. But this is what Jesus declared to them. He says, if you refuse me, if you do not respond and come to me and receive me, you will spend eternity in hell. There is no second chance. There's not a time of purgatory or anything else where anything you're going to get a second chance or, or, or stand before God on judgment. They go, oh, now I believe. He said, it's too late. Now is the day of salvation. Today is the day. And by the way, there will be no party in hell. Nowhere in Scripture do you see a party. What we see is weeping and gnashing of teeth. What we see is a place that no one would ever want to go. And as we paint that picture of hell, we also get to see the picture of Jesus. We get to see love and mercy and grace of one who would come and take the penalty of all mankind so they don't have to go there. That he would receive the penalty in their place and escape the wrath of God that's being sorted out. You would think that would be a great offer. And we see their response in verse 22. The Jews, as Jesus says this to them, he tells them they're going to die in their sins and where he's going they cannot come. Verse 22 says, the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says where I'm going, you cannot come. So you've got to understand what Jews believed. Jews believed anybody who committed suicide went to the deepest, darkest part of hell. That that was the worst thing you could do is commit suicide and you went to the worst part of hell. That's what they believed. So in their pomp and arrogance, they're saying, oh, Jesus is going where we could never go? Well, then he must be killing himself because he must be going to hell. Because we would never be going there. But here's the irony. Jesus is telling them just the opposite. He says, you are going there. That is where you're headed. Unless you turn and receive me as the Messiah, that's where you are headed. Jesus clearly states this to everybody in the crowd so they would understand that he is the only way. He continues in verse 23 and says, Look, you're from below. I'm from above. You are of this world and I'm not of this world. He's trying to explain to them, Look, your thinking is finite. You have limited understanding. You're from down here. 
you don't see everything that I see. I know everything. You think you know everything, but I actually do know everything. This is a warning of love. He's trying to get their attention. Well, look, your knowledge is limited. Mine is limitless. And because of that, he warns them again. Already he warned them. He's going to restate it again. Look at verse 24. He says, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Second time. It's just a matter of a couple sentences. He says, look, apart from me, you're headed for destruction. I'm the only way. He says, you're going to die the fool. You're going to die as the wicked. Your part is going to be in the lake of fire that burns forever. But I am here to rescue you from that. Church, that's the best news. That's why it's called the gospel. It's good news. It's to be received. It's to be enjoyed. Jesus is telling them, unless you believe that I am he, you are going to die in your sins. He's saying there's no other option. Apart from me, you will die and suffer eternal destruction. There it is. But here's the alternative. Jesus says, you believe that I am. I want you to look at verse 24 again. When he says the latter part, Unless you believe that I am he. Most of us, I'd say all of us, have an English translation in front of us. And it says, I am he. In the Greek, there is no word for he. It literally says, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Now, some of you are catching on. Some of you already know what that means. He said, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Great significance here. And what is he saying? He's saying, unless you believe that I am God, you will die in your sins. Let's connect that together. Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. God speaking to Moses. God says to Moses, I am who I am. And Moses says, or Jesus said, or God, excuse me, whew, God says, say this to the people of Israel. Because Moses asked, who should I say sent me? And this is the response. God says, tell them, I am has sent you. I am. And that's why Jesus is going through all these I am statements. He's saying, I and the Father are one. I am the great I am. Jesus tells them, unless you believe that I am, I am, you will by no means spend eternity in heaven. Jesus repeats this warning that unless they believe it, they will die in their sins. And the second repeating, the mention of I am, gets their attention. And they respond with our fourth point, the fourth point, which is the question. Here's the question. Verse 25, they respond and say, who are you? Hey, about time. Great question. Because this matters. The people in the crowd had all kinds of ideas who Jesus was, and they finally settle down and go, who are you? Who are you? Jesus has made it very clear who he is, and yet they did not believe. But now they ask the question, who are you? And this is so important because it is so important to truly know who Christ is. Because if you don't know who Christ is, you don't know who the Father is. 
You must know who Christ is. Remember the crowd in John chapter 7. Some were like, he's a prophet, the Messiah. He's nothing special. He's a man that should be arrested and, and killed. They have all different opinions of who he was. Church, if you get Christ's identity wrong, you get eternity wrong. You hear me? If you get Christ's identity wrong, you get eternity wrong. And that is what the danger of people showing up at your doorstep and knocking and just telling you, hey, I want to tell you about this Jesus. What Jesus are they talking about? Is he the Jesus of the Bible or is he the Jesus they have made up? Because if you get the identity of Jesus wrong, you get eternity wrong. We have to know who he is. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. He is the God-man, fully God and fully man. Jesus declared these truths throughout his entire earthly ministry. That if you know him, you'll know the Father. But if you don't know him, neither will you know the Father. Pick back up in our text, verse 25. They respond to Jesus. They say, first, who are you? And Jesus says to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. He's not changing the story. He's still the Messiah. He's still the Son of God. He's still the great I Am. He says, I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to you the world what I have heard from him. From him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. You see that he there? That's only in your English. He says, when you've lifted me up, you will know that I am and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father has taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. What is Jesus referencing here when he says, when they lift me up? The cross. He says, you will know. You will know on that day that I am the I am. The question from this section that we must ask is, who is Jesus? That's what they asked him. Who are you? And church, you must get this answer right. You must get it right. There's many questions in life that you can get wrong, and you'll still be okay. But you can't get this one wrong and be okay. It's a life and death situation. The answer to the who are you about Christ is a life and death situation. Jesus again refers to him being lifted up. He says, you will know when I'm lifted up that I am the great I am. He's foretelling his crucifixion, his subsequent resurrection, that he is the one, he is the word. He is the one that was in the beginning. He was the one who was with God. He was the one who was God. You guys remember John chapter 1, the opening part? Verse 14 of John chapter 1. And he took on flesh and he dwelt among us. The only begotten of the Father. This is Jesus. The one who took on humanity, who has been God for all eternity, takes on humanity for one purpose. What's that purpose? To save sinners. Jesus comes on mission to save sinners. But unless we come to him, is what he's declaring, unless we come to him, unless we know him, unless we follow him, unless he is the light of the world, 
we too will die in our sins. If we don't follow him as the light, we too, just like those Pharisees spoke to, will die in our sins. Jesus proclaims this clearly to everyone in the crowd. And we see in our last point, point number five, what the result is. As Jesus declares to the crowd, verse 30 tells us, and as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Church, that is great news. The words of Christ that went out then are the same words of Christ that go forth today. We read in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Christ spoke and some came to a saving knowledge. Christ still speaks through his word today and people come to a saving knowledge. And this church is why we preach Christ and him crucified. That's why Paul the apostle said that's what we preach. We preach Christ and him crucified. This is why we preach. We have the conviction that we go line by line through the scriptures. That's why we guard the pulpit. It is the power of God's word to transform individuals, to regenerate hearts, to save souls. You know, it's great for someone to get up and give a, a motivational talk and you feel all fired up. And you know, Have you ever watched an infomercial on, on some kind of exercise machine? Man, it's like 3 o'clock in the morning, you can't sleep, and you're like, man, I'm going to get so fit with that thing. You get pumped up. You're like, man, that guy's really, look at me. He looks great, and, or she looks great. And then by the time morning comes, you're like, I think it's time for Polly's. And you're like, let's go eat. Totally forgot. You were pumped up for a moment. But the Word of God goes to a much deeper-seated affection. That those who are born of the Spirit, that's what it feeds and for those who are spiritually blind, that is what God uses to open the eyes of the blind. God's word. And that's why we have the conviction that that's what we preach is God's word. We preach the truth of God's word. We present Christ to everybody just as the scriptures do. That by preaching Christ, some might come to a saving faith. Just like we see in our text 2,000 years ago when people heard the words of Christ, the same is true today. God draws people to a saving faith in Christ. Jesus has an invitation to follow him, to come to him, to receive him as the light. And it goes out to everybody, including everybody today. Come. Have you come to Christ? Well, Pastor, you ask this all the time. Because you could come to church every single week and still not know Jesus. You can go to church every day, every Sunday of your entire life and come to the end and have found out, I truly did not come to Jesus. I knew everything about him, but I did not come. Jesus says, come, be delivered from the domain of darkness into light. He says, are you following me? Church, come, come to Jesus. He is the light of the world. He is the only way out of darkness. Look, you look at the world around us, and many of us will say, yeah, I can attest, it's dark out. Jesus is the only way. He makes it clear, and he says, I am the light. May we come to the light, stand in the light, and follow the light. Let's pray. Father, what a glorious truth that we are told through your scriptures. That just as Jesus presents himself to the crowd over and over again, that he is the bread of life, that he is the one who brings living water. This morning we look at him saying, I am the light of the world. Over and over and over again, the invitation went out. 
And we find ourselves in this place where the invitation goes out over and over and over again. And yet we get encouraged when we look at the Scriptures and see as Jesus does it, people come to a saving faith. Father, we pray that this morning you would bring people to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your patience with us. We thank you that you are a God who is long-suffering, a God who is gracious and merciful. We thank you for your Son who gives us light. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.